Now, what I've been asked to do this afternoon is to give some historical illustrations or examples of the great themes that we've already heard about this morning from the Scriptures. We've heard, of course, that in the New Testament, the word ecclesia uh, is a word that we use to describe the church. In ordinary Greek, it just meant those that are called out of, just called out of. But in scriptural language, the way it's used in the New Testament, it means more than that. We have been called out from the world, but we have also been called in to the bonds of Christ and the love of Christ and all the glories of the gospel. And we're united together in that call, in the bonds of fellowship and encouragement, all of which we've been hearing about this morning. We've been hearing as well that uh, the word can refer to the universal church, that is, all those alive uh, that are in Christ, whatever tribe, nation, or people they belong to. But generally it means that the local church, the independent church, and that's what we're talking about this afternoon and throughout this day. Now, just before I begin, I came across a, a nice description of the independent church, which I don't like to give a quotation right at the beginning because you all turn off, but don't turn off. Uh, here, here is this, it's 19th century, so it's got to be historical, what I say. So from the 19th century, somebody said this, the Christian church originated in the personal relationship between Christ and his disciples. Imagine that, Christ and his disciples. He gathered them into a fellowship. They trusted in him. They followed him and did his will. He was their teacher, example, redeemer and king. The union with him was the cause of their union with one another. An independent church is the nearest approach to the fellowship which existed between Christ and his disciples. Think of that. An independent church is the nearest thing you can come to, to the fellowship that existed between Christ and his disciples. The essence of the true independent church is a church composed of believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, filled with his spirit and active in his service. I thought that was a good description. Now, we sometimes talk about the church as Catholic and apostolic. Catholic and apostolic is a traditional way of describing the church of Jesus Christ. Catholic, of course, means not confined to one nationality. Uh, but it can also mean composed of all sorts and conditions of men. It is a wonderful thing that the church is a mixture of all types, all ages, all nationalities, all sorts of people. There is a famous story, I won't mention the man's name, but of how he came to be a Christian. And he came to be a Christian by sitting on a seat, a park bench you might say, in Cambridge, watching the punts go by on the river. 
And he was watching these things. It was also in his mind about the things of God. But he looks at this gathering of people that were all going along. They, they were all together. That was a thing, a different bunch, but they were all part of a, a group. And he was puzzling and thought, well, they're young. They're old. They're all types of people. Wonder what sort of a club they're in. What sort of a group. Must be very unique. And then it dawned on him. It was a church outing. And it made him think, if the church can take in such a vast variety of people, there must be something in it. Uh, and that is a good point. It is Catholic. It's universal. It's made up of all sorts, types uh, of people. And we may, we may develop that, this, uh, this Catholicity of the church. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. You imagine in the ancient world, a cruel world really, it's a cruel world today, we know that, but it was very cruel in those times, times of the Romans, times of the New Testament. And there in this church, there is the slave owner and there is the slave sat next to each other, holding fellowship with one another. There are the rich there are the poor, there are all types, all classes. Uh, it's, it, it's a miracle. And churches down through the centuries have displayed themselves by their harmonious relationships together. It's a miracle, I say it again. Now, I have to give you some historical examples further. Now, say you've gone back to the independence in the 16th, well, 17th century, but a little bit into the 16th century, and uh, you're exiles, and you're in Holland, you're in Amsterdam or somewhere like that. Now you can get a picture of those people. Now I can tell you this, one of those exiled churches in Amsterdam, they fell out over the shape of the minister's wife's shoes. Well, think of that. You better look at your minister's wife's shoes while they're not looking. But anyway, I don't say it was all harmony. But as time went on, they became renowned for their harmony and their peace. Now I'm reading about John Robinson's church in Leiden over there in Holland. Uh, he said this, For ourselves, I tell you, that if ever I saw the beauty of Zion and the glory of the Lord filling his tabernacle, it had been the manifest, a manifestation of the diverse graces of God in the church, in that heavenly harmony and comely order wherein by the grace of God we are set and walk. Well, that's a testimony to the world. And at times when the church has prospered and made an impression and so on, that has been the way of it. Uh, Edward Winslow, you know, one of the leaders of the Pilgrim Father group, he said this, I persuade myself never people upon earth lived more lovingly together or more sweetly than we, the church at Leiden. This is before they sailed. But if they hadn't been like that, you think of all the obstacles sailing across the Atlantic, setting up um, a church and a, a, a congregation and a peoples, a civilization almost, in that inhospitable place. If they hadn't loved one another, if they hadn't been in harmony and fellowship with one another, great things can be done. 
Another example that's well worn, and I'll move on to my next point quick. But you know the, the famous story uh, that takes you up to Hebden Bridge, Wainscot up there uh, in Yorkshire. And uh, the minister, Mr. Fawcett, was just about to leave. You know the story. He was going to be the successor of the great John Gill. Can you imagine that in London? And all these goods were loaded up. You know this. And he couldn't go. The people were crying. His heart was breaking and aching at leaving his congregation up there in Yorkshire. And they took all the goods off the, off the cart and he stayed. That's how it should be. Love between the people and the minister. Such a bond of affection. Help us to help each other, Lord. Each other's cross to bear. Let each his friendly aid afford and feel his brother's care. I won't say anything more about that, but it's there. Now, the next thing we might notice is, of course, churches value individuals. I'm not talking about rampant individualism, but right from the beginning, the Bible stamps this truth on us. We're made in the image and the likeness of God. That's one thing. We're individuals. We come to know Christ as individuals. And we are responsible individuals. The church is made up of born-again individuals and responsible individuals. Now, Jeremiah had a problem with his people in Jeremiah 31, and he coined this famous phrase, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. What does that mean? Well, the people were saying, it's not our fault, you know. It's not our fault that we do these wicked things. It's the fathers. It's our grandfathers. It's those that went before us. They set these things in motion, and we're just following on from them. No, says Jeremiah. No, you've lost the sense of personal responsibility. You're guilty. It's not my brother, it's not my sister, it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Uh, personal responsibility and duty. We lost that sense today, you know. In those days, one of the aspects of it was a spur to holy activism. We're all responsible. We should be doing something here. It's not just down to the minister. The value of the individual in the sight of God. We touched on that. Great witness in the early church. Great principle. Life was cheap. If you go back to Roman times and beyond, and in other times, of course, life was cheap. But in the presence of God, in the church of God, life is very, very valuable indeed. We're in a society today where individuals are not valued. And if we show how much we do value the individual, that is a great testimony for us. We know there isn't the yearning for the salvation of others today. We're all guilty of it. I know I am. Do I care where my neighbors are going to spend eternity? Do I care whether they really know the meaning of life? Do they really know God? The value of every single individual. These things were known by our forefathers uh, that went before us. Our Lord said, 
What if a man having a hundred sheep and he lose one? What will he do? He'll go out and he'll find it. He'll seek until he finds the value of the individual. Now, the Puritans, they valued the individual. And there's a wonderful quote from Macaulay describing the, the attitude of the individual Puritan. I'm going to read it again. Bear with me. He said, for his sake, this is how this individual's thinking, for my sake, I might say, for my sake, the almighty God had proclaimed his will by the pen of the evangelist and the harp of the prophet. He had, he has, he had been wrestled, rest, he had been wrested by no common deliverer from the grasp of no common foe. He had been ransomed by the sweat of no vulgar agony, by the blood of no earthly sacrifice. It was for him that the sun had been darkened, the rocks had been rent, the dead had ridden, that all nature shuddered at the sufferings of the expiring God. For me, he's saying, all this, the prophets spoke. The disciples, the evangelists preached and spoke. And Christ went to the cross and the rocks were rent, you know, and the sky was dark. And all this wonderful purpose of God and the redemption of the, it was for me. And then what do we say? Love so amazing, so divine demands my life, my soul, my all. If Christ died for me, said C.T. Stott, then no sacrifice is enough for me to give to him the value of the individual. And it was the same that inspired that great company of missionaries, uh, the beginning of the 1800s and so on into the 19th century. William Carey, not so far from here really, he was burdened, wasn't he, for the souls of those in Indians. So, and, and the same you could go on with a whole list uh, 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 of others. What about William Wilberforce and the slave trade and all that? God taking hold of a man and looking at his fellow men around and being burdened. It moved people. And it reminds us, of course, that we've all got this responsibility. I'm going to go on to the priesthood of all believers in a minute. But it comes to what mind of him. Are you sitting idly? We learned this in Sunday school. Are you sitting idly? Still there's work to do. In the master's vineyard, there's a work for you. Who, me, you say? Yes, here's another. Search for it. Find it. God's holy work. It never is far away. Find it by doing with heart and with soul the duties that call each day. You know what they are. This is, these are from Sunday school hymn books. How, what are we teaching the young, you say? Well, anyway, the priesthood of all believers. There's no radical distinction between the ordinary members and the minister. Oh, yes, the minister has a distinct position. So do the deacons and the elders. But in a sense, with a sense, that we're not, we're non-sacerdotal, you may say. You remember Hooper, who was a bishop. He wasn't a free church man. The bishop Hooper of Gloucester. But he's an example of this. For he wouldn't wear the surplice. He wouldn't wear that. Because it makes a difference, he said, between me and the ordinary church member. There is a difference. But he wasn't putting himself on a pedestal. He was saying, 
the work of the church in a sense is everybody is responsible for it. Somewhere here, I had a famous, here it is, you can get these on the internet, you know, if you haven't got the set. Spurgeon, you have to quote Spurgeon. Here it is. All at it. All at it. It's a great sermon for stirring us all up in the sense that we all have responsibilities. What can be achieved? Well, stay with Spurgeon. What can be achieved if all are at it? If all bear the responsibility? If all truly believe in the priesthood of all believers? You see that list? I know you can't. But it's a great long list. And it goes down the next page of that. And there are mission halls, almshouses, all that ragged schools. There's a whole list of uh, works that were going on because they were all at it. This is a day for us being all at it. Just think we're here in Bedford. Ordinary people, the women, I don't know whereabouts in Bedford it was, you may know, who were talking in the street and John Bunyan went to listen to them. He knew they were there. Must have been some kind of a purpose for them of doing that. But they were at it. And the great John Bunyan came eventually to know Christ as his saviour. Now, something else. Living faith over order. Now, wait a minute. I'm going to be in danger of being shot here. Because, I don't know about you, order, and we've heard it this morning, is very, very important. We don't want disorder in the house of God. God is a God of order. We don't advocate disorder. But I'll stick to my heading. Living faith over order. So, so what do I mean under this heading? Well, I'll give you an example from 1550, an early independent church. This is what happened. It says, after the morning service, several people entered the church with the intention, it would seem, to cause trouble by asking various questions. The questions are these. Whether it was necessary to stand or kneel during prayers or whether prayer should be read or extempore and many other questions along that line. There's interesting questions. Stand or sit or read or extempore. Why had they come? Why were they asking that question? Not because they were interested, but they wanted to cause trouble. But what was the answer? They said, these things are secondary. It's the heart that is the most important. They went. They hadn't caused the trouble they were after. Well, it's like that sometimes. Sometimes you do have to do things that maybe other people would argue about or, or, or wouldn't go with you. Now, a few weeks ago, I took some youngsters, students they were, to Hannam Mount in Bristol. It is where Whitfield preached to the miners. You know that wonderful picture of the tears falling down their blackened cheeks. But it was the first place where John Wesley preached in the open air. I know he wasn't an independent. He was a man 
half independent and half as conservative Anglican as you can get. But I'll put him into this picture here. And he said this, in the evening, I reached Bristol and met with Mr. Whitfield there. I could scarcely reconcile myself at first to this strange way of preaching in the fields of which he set me an example on Sunday. Having been all my life till very lately so tenacious of every point relating to decency and order and order that I should have thought the saving of souls almost a sin if it had not been in church. You see what I mean? We can think like that. And then the next day he, he wrote this. At four in the afternoon, I submitted to be more vile and proclaimed in the highways the glad tidings of salvation, etc., etc. He was breaking with the general order uh, of things. And sometimes uh, you have to do that. i give you one more example. I take you to the Lollard. Mr. Purvey, his name was, and um, he, he was arrested. It's happening today. He was arrested for preaching in the street, in the highways or whatever it was. And he answered his accusers like this. He said, as it were a great madness when my brother lieth in a deep ditch and is a point, at a point of drowning to suffer him to lie still while I go to the bishop and ask him for a license to draw out my brother from the ditch. So it is great folly when our Christian brethren lie in the deep ditch of horrible sin and point of drowning in hell to suffer them to lie still and run to a worldly bishop and ask for a license to save their souls. Well, it was men who broke through that sort of mentality and went out with the word of God. I'll give you another example from just up the road here. Richard Davis of Rothwell, congregational minister at Rothwell. A lot of people criticized him in his day and even now. He was ordained in 1689. And it, said, it was said of him this. His zeal in the exercise of his office knew no bounds. Could he say that of us? His zeal in the exercise of his office knew no bounds. His labors were most abundant. And to his own personal exertions, he added the help of gifted brethren in his church, whom he sent round the country in every direction, called sinners to the knowledge of the truth. It was an age of regularity, and practices so uncommon stirred up many adversaries. On top of his pastoral duties at Rothwell, he extended his journeys 80 miles in every direction around that town, preaching in 13 counties. Churches were established, and he called on the preaching abilities of his own church members to itinerate and minister to these newfound causes. For this, he came under considerable criticism from some, marveling that he had sent forth a swarm of tailors, weavers, dyers, shoemakers, and farmers to preach. However, Many of these itinerants became in the fullness of time pastors of churches formed from these societies which they had gathered in the towns and villages to which they had preached. Sometimes it's going outside the camp, as Mr. Lloyd-Jones, Dr. Lloyd-Jones once described it, and as surely happened uh, in those ancient days of Moses. Now, I, I've got another heading now, and... Uh, all Protestants 
thought along these lines at one time a day. It was a principle of Protestantism, and you will have heard of it. It's called the right of private judgment. The right of private judgment. Well, it's the right to read the scriptures, and that's saying we've got them in our own tongue and language. Mr. Tyndale and the others, this was a part of their thinking. But it was the right to read the Bible for ourselves and to form our own judgment on its meaning, I'm reading this, under the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit. Now that's dangerous in some ways, isn't it? We could all jump to all kinds of weird and wonderful ideas of what the Bible was saying. But it safeguarded the principle. We take heed, we value, we consult, and we look to the guidance of ministers and those who have studied the Bible very thoroughly. We don't just read it and come up with wild ideas and so on. But we have the right to look at Scripture and exercise our own minds as to what it means. The idea, of course, was prevalent in those far-off days that only, well, you would say the Pope or the Roman Church could interpret the Scriptures. You see, that was it. You have to interpret them according to what these people say, to what is the received idea of these people over here, you see, not what it really says. Now, we don't really have that problem today, but it highlights various things. One obvious thing is we should be Bible-reading congregations, all of us. It's important. And we shouldn't take too much heed to what other people say we should be thinking. Now there's a lot of that going on today. There's a lot of brainwashing going on in schools. You have to remember that in, in, in our congregations there are people who are watching the media sometimes or listening to the media day in, day out. And there are people telling us, this is how you should think. This is right, that's not right, this is wrong, and all the rest of it. This is how you're supposed to look at life. Well, no, we have the right of private judgment. Uh, this is from Leonard Busher, separatist in 1614. He said this, The scriptures do teach that the one true religion is gone by a new birth, even by the word and spirit of God. And therewith also it is maintained and defended. And no king, no bishop, can or is able to command faith. Such may force men to church against their consciences, but they will believe as they did before when they come out. Men cannot be forced to church by persecution. The bishop should understand that it is preaching and not persecuting that gets people to the church of Christ. He talks about the magistrate as well, compelling people to do this and do that. It's part of the general liberties of a free Christian country that we think for ourselves. We don't follow the fashions of the day. And we should be aware that many of our hearers are really bound by, blinded by, the fashions and the thoughts of today. We read the Bible, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. It's a massive subject, but it's important. Well, 
That leads me on five minutes to go. The importance of Scripture. And the importance of Scripture, not only reading it ourselves, but in the church. This is a very obvious point. But I'm saying it from this magnificent pulpit. And the very layout of this chapel emphasizes the importance of the preaching of the word. Nowadays, people have anything going on, but not the preaching of the word. You know, the beginning of the 20th century, end of the 19th century, church architects, chapel architects, put the pulpit over here somewhere or over there somewhere. You know that. They didn't come here, obviously. But the famous Joseph Barker, you couldn't agree with everything that he said, really. But when they were building the city temple in London, they were saying, now where shall we put the pulpit? And he came in and said, put it there, <laughs> right in the middle. And it was a big one made of marble, actually, in those days. But anyway, it emphasizes the point, the central thing. Is the pulpit, it's the worship of God. But it's the climax of worship when the word of God is opened and we hear it and we respond to it and we believe it. There are some people who cry out hallelujah at certain texts. Well, it can be not very helpful, but it says it's an act of worship. The highest point, when God speaks to the likes of us. That's important. And, of course, our hymns. A good example would be this. To go home and take out a hymn book, a good hymn book, and write down each line, and then find as many texts you can for that one single line, and then the next line. And you will see how wonderful, spiritually skillful our hymn writers were. Take, for instance... Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly. Jesus, lover of my soul. You'd go to Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 10. Let me to thy bosom fly. You'd go to Isaiah 40, verse 11, or John 13, 23. I'm just giving you a few texts. While the nearer waters roll, Psalm 69, or Isaiah 43. Hide me, O my Savior, hide. Psalm 27, Psalm 32, Luke 2, 11. And so you could go on. Our hymns are a treasure. Sometimes they say the congregation learns more from the hymns than the sermon. That shouldn't be. But it's important that the hymns are right and not little jingles as they write today. So you could go on that subject. The psalms taken from scripture. The sermons based on scripture. The prayers modeled on scripture. Matthew Henry's book of uh, prayer texts and so on. Very worth having. Part of the mission of the church to distribute the scriptures. They say more people are converted by having a Bible put in their hands than for a long time today. That's important. Well, we could say that. Prayer is an obvious thing to mention. And we know in the 18th century, the concerts for prayer, for revival. Don't be fooled by the word concert. Uh, it just meant gatherings, gatherings. The cocks crow thickest towards the break of day, said William Gurnall. And by the cocks crowing, he meant the congregations praying. The cocks crow thickest towards the break of day, William Gurnall. And then, can I have one more minute? Just one. 
Ian Murray said this. He said, um, spiritual awakenings do not come because prayerfulness rises to a certain degree of intensity. It is true God appoints prayer as a means of blessing, but he does more. The Spirit himself inspires the prayer which he means to answer. And so with regard to prayer, the Christian's first encouragement is that in this also God is his help and strength. Prayer depends as much upon God as the shadow does upon the sun. It's the divine influence in prayer which counts. Where this is absent, it matters not how many participants may be organized in a petition and position heaven. We shall only beat the air. We want God to come down on our personal praying. God to come down on our individual praying. Well, I must end. Paul was in the storm on the Mediterranean and the ship seemed to be sinking. And what did they do? They threw all the tackle and the cargo overboard. And sad to say, so many churches these days are throwing over all the tackle, all the good things and all the precious things. And where are they going? Down to the bottom of the spiritual ocean. Well, there it is. My time's run out. I didn't mention... uh, No, I better not. (laughs) God bless.